Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Adrian Goldberg talks to MC Majika, the self-confessed Mr. Marmite of Rave, to find out how the young boy from Sturchley hooked on beats, got his break with UB40, and went on to MC for Carl Cox and some of the biggest names in dance music. Imran Majid, aka MC Majika, was and is the MC for legendary DJ and producer Carl Cox. Majika made his name on the uh, 90s rave scene after making his breakthrough as resident MC at Earthquake in Birmingham. Spent three decades working in the music industry across various dance music genres, hardcore, techno, jungle, but especially drum and bass. He runs the legendary Raveology Nights, which found a home for a time at the massive Air Nightclub in Digbeth, now gone. But Raveology still survives today and has played host to the likes of Goldie, Ronnie Size and Groove Rider, to name just three. Raveology has branched out to a hugely successful Star Wars-themed night. Imran, known to his friends as G, also founded the UK National Drum and Bass Awards, championed by Radio 1, Radio 1 Extra and MTV. He also founded the Jungle Gathering. And for anyone who fancies taking him on at the end of the night, just be warned, he is also a two-time black belt in Wing Chun Kung Fu and kickboxing. Chronologically then, G, where did it all start for you? Musically, it started um, just by hanging around a load of friends. Uh, and they were sort of big in the sort of early acid house scene, uh, the illegal parties. You know, we're, we're talking late, late 80s. Um, I hadn't got a clue what they were talking about or, or what the whole thing was. <laughs> I've got a funny story where I went round to one of my friends and uh, they were all going to these parties. And they said, um, do you want some gear? And I'm like, I was thinking they were talking about clothes. Do you know what I mean? I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> looking at me like this kid ain't got a clue. I didn't. You know, I was totally not, 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 from, not from that place. But musically, um, it happened not far from here. There was a club called Coast to Coast next to the old uh, central TV studios. And I went there on a Friday once and I heard a tune by um, some electronic guys from Belgium called T99. And the track was called Anastasia. And that, that was it. I was hooked. That whole track... There was no vocal, and there was a little vocal snippet. The vocal was foreign, so you didn't even know what the guy was saying. But the music was just, it was hypnotising, and, and that was it. I was, I was very intrigued by the sound, It was because I'd never heard it before. Uh, it was something that it wasn't on commercial radio at all. No, no one would give it the chance or the, or the light of day to, to play such a sound, but it, it, it appealed to me. And then it was like, OK, my friends are into this. Right, OK, so we we'll started to explore and speak to them. And then the, the rest is history, as I say. Yeah, well, we'll come back to that point, but I want to go right back to you growing up. Just yeah. tell me a little bit about your life growing up and your family. Um, so just working class family. Mum worked at Cadbury's. Dad was a steel worker. Um, got an older brother and uh, lived in, in Bearwood till the age of six. Moved over because mum worked at Cadbury's in Bourneville. So we, we, we lived in Sturchley um, and grew up there. And it was a, a very tough place. Sometimes I find it hard to talk about it, but... Uh, Sturchley, in, if you walk around in certain parts of Sturchley now, 
etched in some of the walls, faded, you'll see the word Sturgeley Skins, because it was a prolific movement at the time, uh, uh, very volatile, and there were some very hairy moments. My mum was attacked by them. Um, it's dangerous. Um, it, was, yeah, it was quite emotional. What kind of era are we talking about? Um, 70s going into 80s. Yeah, so it was tough. It was tough. It was, um, there wasn't many culture, you know, cultural sort of, you know, ethnic people living in the area. So um, the lack of education and the understanding of how to integrate with people like us was, wasn't, wasn't there. It was null and void. So it was, it was a tough place to live. It was challenging at times. But, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But your mum was physically targeted. Yeah, she was, yeah. Yeah, I was... One of my duties was to go and meet mum sometimes from work because dad was working. So sometimes, because she'd worked like the shift till 7pm, and especially in the winter, it'd get dark. So I'd go and meet her if my, if my older brother couldn't. Uh, and he was a tough nut, by the way, uh, um, Cameron. But he, he sometimes he wasn't around. So I'd go and once I went to meet her and we were walking back and um, it, it, it just snowed. And... Um, <clears throat> they were out and about, and they, they snowboarded really bad, like really bad, and they went to kick a red in, and, uh, you know, um, and I remember running to a, a phone box, calling, and luckily at home, my brother was home, um, and, uh, yeah, Cam's a bit of a man about town, even now still, I mean, he's a lawyer now, but uh, he's a champion, you know, world champion weightlifter, but he was strong then, he was a boxer, and he boxed with a very well-known family from Birmingham, called them the Krakens, yeah. so, you, you know, you know he's, he's got roots and heritage, so luckily he was at home and he came, he came running and yeah, there was a couple of guys in the house as well. So that was hairy. So yeah, they, they basically saved the day, but yeah, it was, a, it was a hairy time living in Sturgeley. And what about for you growing up in Birmingham? Because we like to tell a very positive multicultural story about ourselves in Birmingham. Obviously yeah. your mum's experience says something different. Of course. What about you? On the positive side... Well, you know, I made a lot of friends, um, you know, some good friends, some good experiences. It wasn't all bad. Obviously, you know, some of those experiences, you're going away and, and, and sometimes when you, you know, when you, when you talk about them, they outweigh the good. But uh, there was a lot of good stuff there, you know, growing up, you know, good friends. I was into sport. I was into cricket. Um, almost got to play for, for Warwickshire. And then I had an accident and got run over by a car. And then that, that sort of never happened. Um, never came to, just never found my way back in. But yeah, it was good though. It was, <laughs> that was good. It wasn't all doom and gloom. Good friends, good people. Uh, and still, still attached to the area, which we'll talk about. Indeed. And yeah. uh, you and I share a school in common. We both went to secondary school at Kings Norton Boys School. Yeah. Uh, I was just a couple of years older than you, I think. And um, there's probably no plaques to me there. I don't know if there'll be a plaque to you there, is there? Do they recognise you at um, school? Th they actually do, yeah. I presented on MTV in, in the 90s about five times and then I think to like because Birmingham Mail did a, a, an interview an article on me about this guy who's on MTV and stuff I, I remember that it was a journalist who actually contacted me got my number and said look we've been told that you're presenting on MTV who are you so they did a piece and then Kings Norton Boys it was you know it was mentioned you know he went to Kings Norton Boys and they talked about me in the assembly and then I went back and met them all and stuff and it's funny enough now now with my teaching I've actually gone back to that school to, to teach in Richmond and to work with the school leavers about situation awareness and stuff uh, and, and, and sort of, you know, um, how to avoid, you know, uh, confrontations of all forms. And how was it as a school in terms of encouraging you to achieve your best, to follow your dreams? Should we go back to the doom and gloom? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like the violin sessions with Majika. Uh, no, no, it was, it, was, it was a tough school because at the time, 
the education in terms of integration and working with ethnic students. The teachers didn't know how to approach it. So I remember jokes at the time that would never last a minute now. There'd be an uproar if I mentioned some of the jokes that they used to come out with. So once upon a time, I was tying my shoelace and the teacher went, what are you doing praying to Mecca? Now to that back then, they all thought it was funny, but how far would that get now? It'd be an outcry. So it was, it was tough then, it was challenging then. And it was only me as a, an ethnic Pakistani in, in the year. Um, there was a, another guy, Jamaican guy. There was that fear, that, that perception of fear towards black people. Oh no, you don't want to mess with them. You know, and that was prevalent there. And uh, he never got any grief at all. He was big and strong and tall. I wasn't. And uh, yeah, I got a lot of grief. It was, uh, it was uh, harrowing. The teachers didn't know how to handle it. The parents weren't very good at educating their kids. So when it was mentioned to the kids, they weren't, they weren't sort of, uh, um, they, weren't, they didn't sort of act on it or, or, or help or assist in the situations at all. It was just like, deal with it, you know what I mean? So it was a, it was a tough place to go to. Good learning curve, because as I said, it just made me strong. And some of the little conversations that we had earlier about some of the teachers telling you, you know, you can't do this and you can't do that. And, and I was like, nah, you, you can do stuff. You know, from that early age, you can do stuff. You can't tell me no. Who were you to tell me no? But you were a bright student, weren't you? Got your A-levels and... I did, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. could have gone, were thinking about going to medical school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that whole thing of, you know, you can't do this and you can't do that. And me, I was a very slow learner. I still am. But it didn't stop me getting a degree. It didn't stop me getting into uh, medical school. I did it. You know, and I was told I couldn't do it. And I did it. And the only reason why I didn't study medicine was because um, I was picked up by a guy called Carl Cox. And next minute I was travelling the world and I was drawn to the lights. Sometimes I regret it because I think I could have been a good doctor. You know, it's all right having the education and stuff. And, but if you, if you care, and I, I believe I do, I think I could have helped a lot of people. But the bright lights came calling. And you heard that track, you mentioned Anastasia in the club, yep. Coast to Coast. So that was your switch on point. Because when we were chatting earlier, you said that as growing up, you used to listen to BRMB. So as a kid then, who were your favourite bands or artists? Well, they were all electronic based. So you're looking at your rhythmics, Human League, you know, even Erasure, that electronic sound, it was all there. All right, some of them probably think, what's he talking about? But, you know, if you look at those bands and you Google them later, or YouTube them later, um, they all had that electronica. It was all there, that difference. And I, I like that synth sound. And commercial electronic music then in the 80s was still a new thing. You know, a lot of people associated with rock music had a real difficulty with the fact that electronic music had developed and was suddenly then in the 80s hugely successful. Yeah, it was, yeah. With, with the likes of those bands, they yeah. brought it to the forefront. And it was different, wasn't it? And you had those quirky artists behind it and stuff. And yeah, and the rest was history. It worked really, really well. And yeah, they, I, I gravitated towards that sound. It was a very interesting sound. So the love and appreciation for dance music, you know, you, you can tell where it came from. So, but you're going back to this Coast to Coast Club and Anastasia. Yeah. So how does that then work yeah. to getting picked up by Carl Cox? What's the link? How do you travel from one to the other? You mean how it happened? Yeah. Just gigging, networking, and then just... Artist seeing you. I made myself different, so I wasn't about lyrics. I was about the crowd and taking, you know, those big crowds. You know, it was like a gift given to us. You know, going in front of thousands of people. And some of those crowds, it wasn't just thousands. It was like 20,000, 30,000, 50,000. So going in front of those, you, you felt like, wow, you know, look at where I am. Look at the opportunity I've got. So it was all about that crowd hype. If you know about like rock music, like Steven Tyler, that's how I performed. 
you know, it was like, you know, Aerosmith like running up and down and hyper and, and but making the crowd feel, we're involved here. We're in this show. This isn't just about him. But you and don't the, just do that from nothing, do you? Where do you learn that craft? I think there was a thing where from being told you couldn't achieve to wanting to be someone and then just looking at what I needed to do to be able to stand on the shoulder of giants. So I just, I, I needed to be big. It needed to be big. Otherwise, it weren't going to happen. Can you remember your first emceeing gig? Yeah, it was um, Earthquake for Earl, who's a really good friend of mine uh, from UB40. Earl Faulkner, yeah. Earl Faulkner. You know, a lot of people don't know, but they, they were really into the rave scene and they, they did a lot of records behind the scenes. And one of the, I mean, there's a few heads in here now, but they'll probably remember some of them tunes. There was a track, it's got a horrible name, but it's called Crackman on the Line. It was a huge tune, but that was them. And when, you, when, when people hear that and know that they're like wow was that them that was them because that's what they loved they loved the rave scene so they made music they made records they had their own little imprint of the label and they started doing a rave night and they just spotted me and I was just that kid who just kept knocking on the door and saying look can you give me a chance and they did and that was that was a gateway how did you feel approaching that first gig can you remember your, your, the moments before yeah shit myself <laughs> yeah very quick <laughs> All week, dreading it, thinking, shit, yeah, part of my French. But yeah, it was, it was nerve-wracking. But, you know, as soon as you went up there, inhibitions, fear was all gone. It was all out the window. The whole build-up was gone then. Mm. But to me, that's part and parcel of it. If you don't get nervous, I don't think it's normal. Not if you really care about it. So go on, Carl Cox then. How do you meet Carl? So Carl Cox was just gigging, touring, and then I was at a place called Kinetic in Stoke, a very well-known club. And I was emceeing there, and then um, he, he saw me. And then we went to a, uh, a gig in Belfast. I was going to Belfast, and this was in the, in, the, in the height of the IRA. Absolutely terrified going to this gig, thinking, oh, my God, it was like a countdown every day, you know, like an advent calendar. Like a, there, it was like, wow, I've got to go to Ireland, to Belfast. And it was always in the press. It was always, there was also, always a, a negative profile about Belfast. Uh, and I went out there to play, and uh, I remember being in the hotel, and then the guy telling me, do you know you're in the, the most bombed building in Belfast? And I was like, you, really? There was like, I said, why? Because it's next door to the British Operatic Company. I said, great, can you move me? And <laughs> it was like, no. And there was like, you know, foot patrols. I've never seen that in my life. You know, a sniper or a guy with a gun lying on the floor with his gun teed up looking, whatever he's looking at, geared up to shoot. It was, that was an eye opener. But uh, at the gig anyway, it was at the Ulster Hall. And um, Carl was doing his live act uh, with a guy called Neil McLennan. Neil McLennan wrote all the music, produced all the music for the Prodigy. So um, they were gigging and then they did their show. And then Carl DJ'd and I did my own set. But Neil said, can you go on with Carl? So I went on with Carl. And then at the end of the gig, we went back to the hotel and uh, my phone rang in my room and it was Carl. And he said, can you come up and see us? You know, and I just thought, yeah just to chill, nothing, nothing else. Then they just popped the question within, within about half an hour, I think, of just having a chat with me to see where they'd analyse, you know, probably just have a personal chat because they'd just seen me in places and perform, but never really spoke to me. So spoke to me, I think, just to, to see, you know, what kind of character I had, I guess. And then just said, look, how do you feel about Tory? And, uh, and I said, yeah. And then literally, I think it was the Monday I had, uh, you know, we had a fax machine, had a fax come through and it was just... Poof, just dates, just like, I, don't, I, I was very overwhelmed. Wow, and you've been performing it, together for more than a quarter of a century. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I toured all over the world. 
went everywhere. We went, I mean, forget abroad. I've been to places in England that I would have never have gone to. Did all that and went, went abroad. And then we did the Progedy UK tour, European tour, uh, supporting them. And then we did parts of the world. And then we just did loads of our own stuff where we just played at festivals. I think, you know, I remember one festival we did, there was like Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, and stuff like that. And then us, it was weird, but it was wonderful. Yeah, and all the way through then, there's a little bit of you thinking, I'm going to prove whoever it was that said I could never be anyone, I'm going to prove them wrong. Who was saying that to you when you were a kid? Um, well, teachers, first of all, in education, because like I said, I was a very slow learner, so their perception is, is of handling it back then, years ago, was, you know, obviously not clever enough or, you know, or messing around or, or, or whatever, and they'd, they'd handle it in a sort of an unorthodox manner, a negative manner. Uh, not guide you and help you and support you, but put you down and belittle you. You know, I remember one teacher saying to me, oh, uh, was was doing sport, a sport activity, and he said, um, you're not thick, are you? But I was in this remedial group, right, for, for maths, because they didn't understand, so they thought, we'll just put them in this remedial group. And he said, oh, are you? But you are thick, because you're in that group, because I teach it. And then I was just like, what a lovely, what a lovely way to teach us. You know, great teacher. You know what I mean? Great school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's interesting though. But you, I mean, we said before we came on that y you are sometimes slow to learn things, but stuff sticks. I mean, obviously, the fact that you qualified for medical school yeah. tells its own story. Yeah. Well, well, like I said to you before, it was it was I had to work harder, mm. uh, and sometimes the work rate was 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 not understood, and even students and friends of mine would say, "You're doing too much." I I couldn't quite explain to them why. I just knew that I had to because I didn't get it. So, you know, for example, I'd, I'd uh, record my own notes on a tape, put them on a Walkman. I'd not only read, but then I'd walk around listening. And then I'd spend hours and hours. And then it paid dividends when they'd get their results. They'd done less hours. They were more intelligent than me than I think in, in terms of speed rate and, and, and absorbing information. But I remember one test, they got 38% and I got 78 But I worked hard. That was all it was, but I had to work harder. Yeah. But I, and then I pushed it to the extreme, and everything else, everything's been like that. A lot of people don't get me because I'm, I am extreme. I'm a very tenacious person, and uh, I remember a, a lady called Gaynor from from Capital Radio now, but uh, when, when when I was there at Galaxy, and she said, "There's going to be people in this world that are going to get you, but there's going to be some that are not going to get you at all." And it all comes from a good place, though. I'm not a bad person. And I, I said to you that little metaphor earlier, it's that Zanussi, the appliance of science, <laughs> how you talk to people. As long as you can talk to people correctly, you might get far. If you make mistakes, correct them. You're going to make mistakes. We're human. Do you know what I mean? It's interesting. You're quite self-aware about the rate at which you learn and how you learn and how you process things. When did you realise that you might perhaps be a little bit different than other kids in, in how you learn and how you take on information? Um... I think it was an, an early stage, really. Mm. Uh, like in the first year of school, at secondary school, I kind of started to understand and was aware of certain things that couldn't grasp what quite, but I kind of knew that it was... I knew what they thought wasn't the case, that he's just remedial, he's low level, he's not at the expected levels, he's you know, under par. I knew that wasn't right. I knew that wasn't right. It, there, was, there was something with the learning. Maybe it was not captivated, not engaged. You know, I always found sometimes I was away with the fairies. I was somewhere else. 
So that was very common. That was that was quite that was quite often mm. the case. Yeah, I'd be somewhere else. I'm, a, I'm only an armchair psychologist, but I mean, yeah. have you ever had a diagnosis? Have you ever thought about? Do you know what I have? And I'm I'm pretty clued up to to what's going on now, but I've not been diagnosed. I'm not really into the labels, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I think everybody in this room would probably know where we're going. It's not a bad thing. Tell me about your parents, because obviously you've ended up moving in a, a very different world, say, to your mama you've mentioned growing up in Cadbury's. What, what were your folks like? How did they see your subsequent success in what would, I'm sure, for them have been a very different world? Yeah, well, you know, anyone who knows about the Asian culture, it's about being, you know, pushed towards education. It's like, you're going to be a doctor. You know what I mean? Even though, you know, I wanted to be one. It wasn't, <laughs> you know, but... Uh, but that's, that's what they do. They push you for, towards education. Isn't a bad thing, but I wish they'd had listened to some of the teachers at the time because I was very good at music. And I, I wish that I would, was pushed into playing instruments and stuff because I think it would have been a different ball game now, you know, in terms of who I am and what I did musically. I think I've... Because I've, I've done a lot of stuff musically, but with the help of people who can engineer and program and, and play music. But I think I could have really changed the game because I've, I've written songs that have been played on Radio 1 and, and you know, words and, and music and even even melodies, melody lines and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was something I think I could have done. What did your dad do? He was a steel worker. And then he worked at Royal Mail, just around the corner from here. Unless it's there, I don't think it's Blue Street, the, yes, the central yeah. sorting There you go, yeah, 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 yeah did, yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned your mum sort of being a little Muslim lady. Were, were your parents devout Muslims? Were, was it part very, of life Very much, yeah. Very much, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much. So, you know, from that young age, I had to go to learn the Quran from, you know, the age of 10, 11. So I was going to school, then I was going home, then I had to catch a bus, a good old 35, all the way to Borsal Heath, to the central Highgate Mosque. Then I'd study there. Then I'd go home and then it'd be like night time and then I'd have to go, you know, bed and then back to school. And it was like, and I think that might have played a little bit of a, a thing with it because I think I was really tired as well. And it was a bit draining. That was a challenging time because going to learn the Quran was different to how I think, well, I don't know because I, I, mean, I, I haven't done it recently, but um, they weren't teaching you what you were reading. You were just taught how to, to pronounce these words but you were never taught what they meant. But yeah, I did that for so many years. But um, yeah, they are. Um, my, my dad passed away in 2002. My mum still practices. She still calls me. Have you prayed today? <laughs> yeah. and, you're, and you're still a practicing Muslim. Yeah, well, I, I, I wouldn't say fully, but I definitely ethics and values and respect certain values of the religion. So, you know, I would never eat pork out of respect to my mum and dad. You know, and I pray. I go to Juma on Friday, which is like, you know, the equivalent of Christianity's Sunday service. So, yeah, I do. I've, I'm, I mean, I've always done that. I've always done that throughout my life. I think as you get older as well, there's that common thing where, you know, you start to... People do look towards religion because they know they're getting closer. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, but, yeah, I think, I think that's probably happening a little bit. And, um, you know, you've got this whole scene that, to the outside world anyway, the rave scene is associated with drugs in the minds of many people. There's obviously the, the broader world of alcohol out there. So how are your folks seeing you making your way as a success in that world when they wanted you to be a good Muslim boy and a doctor? Do you know what? It's really funny because um, they were very worried. They were very concerned. 
um, but they could see that I was rebelling. And I think they, they eventually saw where I was most happy. And I think the biggest, <laughs> I think the biggest turn was when, uh, when I was at home and my mum came into my, my room and she came in with some washing. And uh, I was 18, 19 years old. And she came with some stuff and she went to the cupboard and there was like £6,000 in, in the sock drawer. And she was like, where was where, where this come from? And I was like, well, yeah, she knew where it come from. You know, because I, I was out doing stuff coming back late. Performing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was just stashed and stuff, and mm. and she was like, okay. And then I was then I started to tour, and I was I was away all the time, going to an airport, like you know, almost every week. Sometimes I was going away that much, it became tiring. You know, just like you know, boring. If if you know what I'm saying, because I was doing it every week. But yeah, they they soon knew that he's doing something and he's he's making some moves. Because you were obviously successful in it, they accepted that, and that was that was you. Yeah, in the end, they backed it. They yeah. backed it wholeheartedly. Yeah. Now you did leave for ten years, I think, in London. Yeah. So, how important was Birmingham to your ultimate success, or did you have to go to London? I'd already done a lot of groundwork, so I'd done the whole Carl Cox thing, did a lot of stuff here already. You know, it was on you know a few big front covers of some big magazines. First of all, was Dream, which was a, a lower end, um, a lower end mag. But then when I got onto Mix Mag, which was the most commercial with the likes of Pete Tong and stuff, and that hit home to everyone. Then it was like, right, there's something going on here. And that's what I said to you before. It was about trying to be big, bigger than big, because otherwise it weren't going to happen. That was the only way it was going to happen. Do you know what I mean? You had to make moves to get opportunities like that, where they'd go, right, we'll put this guy on a cover of Mix Mag, and that's when things really unfolded and, and got bigger. And is that why you went to London? And that's just where. Yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. I was going there. I was going there, and I was I was visiting my partner who lived there, and and then while I was there, being the guy I was, I was networking, and then I was playing at gigs, and then all of a sudden, oh right, he's here. So then I started to get loads of more shows, and then I started to get loads of more friends, you know, in terms of networking, and then opportunities came. A lot of opportunities came, and the only reason why I I, I came back was my dad died in two thousand and two, and I needed to be closer. So, Mum, I needed to be at home. And I came back and I thought, it's okay. You know, I can go back all the time. And I had a good friend there who, who always said, look, if you need to come here, there's, there's a room, which I used a lot. But you've also proved that you can be hugely successful in the music world with Birmingham as your base and founded Rivology in 2004 yeah. after you'd come back. Tell me about that. How significant in your story is Rivology and what was its evolution? I'd always been around promoters. So I'd always become friends with promoters, probably better you know, for my, against my judgment, you know, because it's not really the ideal thing to do. But I was lucky that I met some really cool, influential people that were really big promoters in the, in, in the, in the game. And I started out putting gigs on because when I couldn't get a platform, I said to you earlier, I put a gig on in Mosley Dance Centre just after the earthquake, uh, the UB40 gigs. So when they night stopped, I took up the mantle and put a few shows on. So I was always, I always had that, you know, uh, in my cap, so called to speak. And I just learnt the ropes, was very aware, observed everything, looked at nights, had my own creative ideas. These juices constantly flow, you know what I mean? And when we talk about conditions, they say about ADHD and having about several screens. Several screens, I had about 20,000 screens going on. So I was always being creative. Um, so I uh, started to, to put things together. And then Raveology was just, it wasn't supposed to be what it turned out to be, which was 
just a project to put a night on in a local club in a small part of Birmingham called Kings Norton, well away from the city centre, and a place called Lakeside Country Club on an industrial estate. Near the tip at Lifford Lane. Near the tip, <laughs> yeah, where the bins are. So, yeah, yeah. And we put the night on and it sold out. It was only a small thing for 500 people, then did another one, and that went well. And then we thought, right, we need to go a little bit bigger. Then we just approached Air, which was, you know, the big club, the place to go. And they offered us a night, and it just went off. The timing was right. They always say the timing is important, and that was the time. And you've got that brand, which continues to this day. Yeah, it's a very listen, successful that, that's brand. a tested brand. It's been through that, you know, we had a really good start. You know, I've got some friends here that have, have seen that brand, and my friend at the back there, Len, you know, he's, he's, you know, he used to work on a lot of the shows because he used to run security and, and venues, and uh, it, was, it was at the forefront. And then, you know, I always used to say, the bubble's going to burst on this because it was really successful. And it did. It did. It had its moments. And I think to be a, a tried and tested promoter, you've got to go through that. And I went through it. Boy, did I go through it, you know, and, you know, made a lot of money and lost a lot of money. And then brought it back about 20, the bubble burst around between 2014, 2016. And we're talking big money. You know, we're talking, you know, house money. That we lost trying to stay in the game, fighting, times changing, scene changing, demographic changing, all kinds of stuff. You know, a good friend of mine said a brand has got 10 years longevity and yeah, it was a little bit longer than that, but I thought he might be right. But then just stuck with it, just changed it, the dynamics of it, and now reinvented it and it's massive. Strong as ever, new crowd, new, new audience, absolutely huge and they've grown up on it, you see. Because it's got the heritage there. Their parents have probably went, older parents or their older siblings. And, uh, and we know how to promote. And we've got the venues there and they want to work with us and stuff. Which hasn't been easy uh, doing that. But, you know, keep and, knocking on the door. And you've got another great brand as well. You've got, well, you've got more than one other one. But talking about all those screens going off, the National Drum and Bass Awards as well. Yeah. Which is, a, again, a national thing out of Birmingham yeah. that you have created. Yeah. There used to be two types of drum and bass awards. There was a sit-down awards by a magazine called Knowledge and there was like the Rave Awards, which is called Accelerated Culture. And they both just stopped and I think a year had passed. And I was like, mm, okay, second year, nothing again. Then I started to say, right, okay, they've got one more chance. If they don't do it, I'm just going to step in. So they didn't do it. Third year, which was a beautiful thing gave me the opportunity and I stepped in and I remember when I did step in there was people that rang me and said man we were ready to do this a lot from London and stuff like really prolific people and we stepped in and it was a crown of thorns there was a lot of like you know who's this guy doing this why is he doing this what was he got the say to do this but we we stuck with it and we made it work and then I think the turning point was 2008 MTV approached us very quickly off the bat and, you know, networking again. They filmed it and broadcast it on MTV. And then 2009, I think, was the turning point. That was Radio 1. And Radio 1 came on board and they did a live broadcast from here, from the city, with one extra. And then I think that was it then. We got DJ, Mix Mag, just all the commercial. We was in the sun, the mirror. It was just mental, central news. The whole point for me was it wasn't just about building a money-making machine. It was about... I've always said I'm like a, this self-proclaimed conservationist. And it was like, it was about flying the flag of the scene and getting as much exposure for the scene 
And that's what a lot of people didn't get and don't get. They just, those people who've got the evil eye, oh, he's just making money and he's all about himself. It's completely wrong. They'd never knew that. Those who know me knew that. It was, it was bigger than me. It was never about me. I was just the guy who was doing it, but I was there, like my, one of my other friends said, when you do stuff, you're going to be building stuff up and yourself and you're going to be up there to be shot at, which I didn't get at first, but, you know, I, I, I certainly did find out because the level of, you know, envious and negative and jealousy was, was quite overwhelming, quite hard to deal with when you're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not about this. I, I don't want to deal with this. This is not what I got into it for. But another friend of mine said, you've got to be thick-skinned. Yeah. So, you know, and that's part of the thing. So, yeah. And you talked about flying the flag for the scene, whether you're conscious of it or not. Yeah. Through that, you're flying the flag for Birmingham. As a young man, you felt you had to go to London to go and make your way, and nobody would criticise you for that. That's how the industry was, and maybe to an extent still is. Yeah. But do you think that through the awards and through Ravology, you've proved that you can actually stay in Birmingham because you live here now, you've got your missus here, you've got two kids here, that you can live and work in Birmingham in the music business today mm -hmm. and be successful in a way that maybe you couldn't have been as a young man? Yeah, well, listen, it, it, I believe now you can be anywhere. There was a point where everyone thinks they've got to go to London, but you don't have to. You can go there to network because you can create opportunities, but you can, you can be anywhere now with technology. And I've made my own life. So it was a, I had to make this myself. I am a product of my own doing. I, I, made, I made me, you know, and, and I did it here. You know, and I used my environment and my background and my city to do it. And that's all I can say on that front. You, know. you, you were proud, Bromé? Very much. Yeah, very much, because it was all about, as I said, flying the flag. So when I did the the drum and bass towards the radio one, I um, found myself sat with the mayor and Alan Rudge, councillor. You know, I'm sitting with MPs and stuff. I'm sat with these now, you know, with these people in the town hall, you know, talking about what I've done for tourism and, 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 and profiling the city. And that was great because it made everything more sense and it made everything worthwhile and it made everything clear that this is what it was always about, doing these type of things, and to get this acknowledgement was, was even better because it just made, it, it made me want to do even more, you know. Do you think it helps make Birmingham look a little bit, a little bit cool, a little bit faster? I think, well, it's not just about me. I think there's a huge community here. I, I played a part of that fabric, 100%. You know, yeah, I'm a part of it. But there's a lot of things happening here that definitely played a role between us all. Yeah, it, there's definitely a, an epicentre here of, 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 of stuff that's going on that people recognise, huge artists, promoters, music, nights that have come from here. You said earlier on as well that when you set up the Drum and Bass Awards that your mate said you were there to be shot at and he only meant it metaphorically. But we know that where there is money and where there are late nights, there are people who sometimes want to muscle in on that. Did you get any of that pressure? Yeah, yeah, there was people trying to intimidate. There were people trying to send out messages, warnings. There was a few signs. Um, something something I've, I've never really mentioned, but at one gig, a particular guy was trying to intimidate and uh, um, I was in a gig and um, I started to fear for my safety. So I started to wear a, a, a vest under my clothing Bulletproof vest. Uh, knife. Stab yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I remember being at a gig at air, and it was very, very crowded. And uh, I saw these two two guys, and I've got this thing right where 
I recognise people. It's really uncanny. It's really weird. And, and scan people's faces and stuff. And I'd never seen these people. And they looked out of place. And they walked towards me. And I felt, poof. As we walked off, I saw the cut mark on my clothing. And um, that was around 2007. They'd attempted to stab they'd, you? They'd, they'd, they'd attempted to. And listen, I don't come from gang w- worlds. I've never dealt with the underworld. I've never broke the law. I haven't got a criminal record. I haven't been in trouble with the police. So it was all a bit too much. And, and, and they, were, they, were, they were homing in. They were trying to get money. So I reached out to a friend at the time who I got to know. And I said, I need your help. He's not with us now. Barrington. One-eyed bass, as he was yeah, known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barrington Patterson. And, um, he passed away recently. And I, yeah, and I said, I need your help. And he, he, he stood by me for many, many, many years. And there was a point where not many people know this either. He was like, I'm not trying to muscle in. <laughs> he said, just tell everyone I'm your business partner. And I'll just shut them up. And I did it. And it, yeah, it changed a lot of things. You know, that intimidation. And I've got a, someone I really look up to. He's, he's here. And I even asked him at one point when Baz was away. I said, can you help me and, and look out for me? And he's always looked out for me. And I've been very lucky that I've had a, a few good people uh, um, look out for me, you know. But the, essentially, these were people trying to muscle in, seeing the profits you were making and just trying to get a share. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were ruthless. You know, they'd ring you up and they'd say, right, listen, come into the club next week, have a £1,000 in an envelope for me. They, they, they thought I was alone. It was all because I never showed that I was not alone. Like my brother Cameron, you know, he's, he's a bit of a character and a bit of a head. And he, he knows a lot, a lot of people. And uh, I had to get him to rear his head. It wasn't about that. You know, just to show people, look, stay away. You know, leave, leave him alone. You're going, you're going around the wrong place here. Buzz changed a lot of it. He changed the landscape, completely changed it. And then through Baz, through those moments, I questioned more so, if something was to happen to me, would I know what to do? And the answer was straight away, no, I wouldn't know. So then Baz said to me, and bless him, he was only in my, in my dojo four days, ago, four days before he passed away. And he said he was talking to my friends and family. And he said, I told him, he needs to grow some balls, get in the gym, train, he's got loads of us around him. Didn't even try to do his accent now. And then he said, and, and learn. And I did. And I went away and learnt Wing Chun, Kung Fu. And uh, I took it very seriously. We don't have belts in there. We do it under the names of certificates and Buji is the highest, Buji 3. And I, I went to that. And now I'm, I'm training now to um, hopefully start over the next 18 months to become a Sifu, which, you know, is a, a high accolade for me, for, for Wing Chun. I'm already a black belt and an instructor in kickboxing, so I've got the two to my credentials. And you've got your own gym, which you've opened in Sturchley as well, yeah. and obviously that's open to the yeah. to the public, but you do make a point as well of trying to work with kids who were yeah. a bit troubled, who so, were a little bit on the outside. Yeah, the whole part of teaching for me was all about not being included. So it was like working with kids who've got ADHD, autism, uh, dyspraxia, kids who have been kicked and expelled out of school, kids who are misunderstood, kids who come from impact areas. I teach also in the private sector, which is a complete difference, you know, monetary-wise and, and, and the academic and, and the type of students, completely different. But I also wanted to do the other side. It was about reaching out. It wasn't just about a business model. It was about making people's lives better. 
And that was the plan. And we did that for a long time. And uh, we're just going to be on Central News in about a week for the work that we're doing with children. For people probably looking at me thinking, this guy's an emotional train wreck, but I care about what I do and uh, it, it gets me. And um, I wear my heart on my sleeve. You say you're choking up talking about that. Yeah, because it, it means a lot. Helping them. I had a parent ring me and say to me, my kid's got autism. Is that a problem? My reply was, you shouldn't be asking me, is it a problem to teach your child? For you to feel that it's a problem, society's shown you that that's a problem. That shouldn't be a problem. That shouldn't be a problem. So I go above and beyond in helping them. I make it a, a, a massive purpose in my life. Because you obviously feel there was something of that undiagnosed in you as a young man and that maybe your life could have taken a wrong turn if you hadn't found the way Yeah, I just did. think guidance and support and empathy. I talked about being a doctor. It's all right having the qualifications, but if you're a caring doctor with empathy, that's going to be better than just some qualified guy who's got no, got no heart, surely, you know. So I thought it could make a difference and help, help kids live better, be better. And... A lot of our work's been documented in the Birmingham Mail and in the press and stuff. We was on BBC Midlands today, back in 2018, and Central then contacted us because we've got some really great case studies, really great, from kids who've been chased with knives to, and they've dealt with our situation awareness methods and evaded being hurt, to kids who have grown in confidence, thought processing, you know, from having conditions, kids who've been bullied, kids who've been fostered, kids who have been abused, kids who just no confidence and no self-esteem, kids who just want to be fit, kids who just want to be involved in things from a wide range of stuff, you know. So that's what it, what it was always about for me. And then helping adults, just like when I said to you, if something was to happen, could I do something about it? My answer was no then. There's adults out there that still feel the same. So we, 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 we work on strategies of just taking care of yourself. That little bit of knowledge can give you that little bit of confidence. That little bit of confidence can give you that little bit of strength. That little bit of strength can give you that little bit of motivation. And it just goes on and goes on to a positive place. You know, and that's, that's what I work towards anyway. And that positivity is reflected in your return to education as well, isn't it? Because, you know, you, you could have been a doctor. Instead, you followed the bright lights of the music world. But you have gone back, Yeah. Uh, you know, in later years to get a degree. Yeah, well, it was all just by an accident. I went with a member of my family to an open day at college and a friend of mine was a lecturer and he said, what are, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just here just to support. He said, what are you doing with yourself? And it was at the time, we were going through a little bit of a rut with the music and the events and you know losing money and stuff and it was just like, right, okay, what do you do? And I thought about sort of, security forces, customs, police, or stuff like that. It was never meant to be, but uh, forensics or something. So I did a H&D and then went on to do a uh, degree top-up in criminology and graduated with a 2-1 and 6% uh, off a first. So, yeah. <laughs> no, come on, that's an achievement, isn't it, blimey? <laughs> so, yeah, well it, yeah. done, brilliant. And uh, I'll just finish on the music. Uh, do you get as much of a buzz now from music as you did listening to that track, Anastasia? Massive. In Coast to Coast. Massive. Listen, my friend there will tell you, He's my psyche. He comes with me on the road. We go all over the shop. He sees. That's where I'm happy. I express myself. You know, creativity. That's, that's in me. It's my flow. It's everything. And you're going to keep getting the crowds up and ready and I, moving I, for years I've to always come. said I will always do it while I get opportunities. And 
I can't see anything slowing down now. I've always said that, you know, and I will carry on until I'm physically able not to. And, you know, mashallah, you know, as we say in Islam, I keep I look after myself, I train, I eat well, and, uh, and I keep myself fit, you know, mentally and physically. And, uh, yeah, long may it continue, you know. Long may you run. Thank you, Chi. Imran Majid, MC Majika. Thank, Thank you. you. On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. <laughs>